the reason to be optimistic about this is that it, it is an area of genuine bipartisan agreement. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, like, let's celebrate that. Yeah. The know? one thing we can agree on in this country is shrooms, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good start. It's a good, it's a, good a start. It's yeah. a start. Yeah. It's a good start. Yeah. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, before we get into our show today, I just want to let our listeners know that we have recently launched a TikTok page, we have our Instagram going, and we have YouTube. And a lot of times what we do is we not only create clips from the show, but we do a lot of other content that doesn't show up on the show. So, you know, go to those platforms, follow us, share our content. And uh, our team has been putting together a lot of curated stuff uh, around Ukraine in particular right now, but also ensuring that all the other stories that are happening aren't getting lost in the shuffle. But Corey, we have a lot to talk about today. Where are we going to start? Busy news day. Homeschooling is on the rise in America. We'll discuss what that tells us about the state of education in this country. Utah, of all states, wants to start looking into potential medical uses for psychedelic drugs. We'll take a trip out west to see what's going on there. But first, we turn east for the biggest story on everyone's mind right now, Ukraine. Kiev remains in Ukrainian control, but the southern port of Kherson has become the first major city to be taken. A second along the southern coast could fall next. And that appears to be the Kremlin's main focus right now, cutting off ports in the south so as to isolate Ukrainian forces elsewhere, particularly its two biggest cities, Kharkiv and Kiev. Taken together, we're seeing troubling signs that Putin's regime is making progress towards overtaking the entire country. The West's response to the invasion has been a series of severe sanctions, the harshest we've ever seen for an economy the size of Russia. So let's unpack what that financial war really looks like and what's still left on the table. Uh, Ravi, I know you've been studying these sanctions. What exactly has gone down so far as far as the economic impact to Russia? Well, you know, you talked about the size of the economy. It's uh, Russia's the 11th largest economy in the world, which is big, but it's still smaller than Italy, Canada, South Korea. It's smaller than certain states like uh, California, Texas, New York. So it's, really? it is a large economy, but it is, it is, I still want to put it in perspective. Now, Obviously, like there's a systemic impact of these sanctions around the world, but I think most importantly, there's the impact of the Russian people. And I think there's going to be a lot of suffering that comes about because of these sanctions. And we talked about last time two parts of the sanctions. One was the uh, cutoff for certain Russian banks of the SWIFT messaging system, which essentially is an interbank uh, secure communication system that banks use when they're transacting. So it's a way for banks to know that, you know, this Part, this part of the party is legit, the other part of the party is legit, and then they can transfer funds. Now, we've cut off a lot of Russian banks, seven of them, from using the SWIFT payment system. During the last show, I talked about how that was significant, and that was basically going to move Russia into the dark ages financially. I think in some follow-up reporting, it looks like this is probably not as strong uh, a mechanism as I originally thought it was, in part because Russia has created its own alternative to SWIFT, but also because a lot of good reporting shows that some of the people we're trying to motivate the most here, like especially people up higher up the hierarchy, big companies, uh, oligarchs, people close to Putin, are probably going to be less affected by SWIFT. And it's going to actually be people lower down the totem pole, people on the, you know, especially people within the supply chain 
uh, an average uh, Russian is trying to move money across borders. But the bigger part of the sanctions that's going to make a huge impact and that is already, I think, having an impact psychologically in Russia are these central bank sanctions. And to put this in perspective, the Russian central, central bank holds $630 billion worth of foreign reserves, and that's equal to 38% of Russia's GDP in 2021. Wow. And so what this essentially means is the, the Russian central bank has foreign currency that in a lot of cases is outside of its country. And because of these sanctions, it seems uh, they can't access those funds. And in part, this is going to really affect people who are importing anything into Russia, which is a huge part of its economy. And they, they actually import more from the EU than they do from China. Really? And so what's happening and what's going to continue to happen as long as these sanctions are in place is that anybody who's importing anything is going to uh, it, they're, they're going to see the costs dramatically increase of importing anything. In some cases, they won't be able to import anything into Russia. And Russia is either going to have to step in to subsidize those imports, or they're going to have to find alternatives, whether it's from China or elsewhere. And so you're already seeing this have a psychological effect. You're seeing lines at ATMs. Uh, you're seeing people trying to convert their money into various forms, cryptocurrency being one of them, which we'll talk about. And so I think by and large, this is significant the ruble has plunged, the stock market, and we're going to put up for folks watching at home, uh, and we'll put these in the show notes. The the graphs are pretty dramatic here. You're seeing a pretty yeah. dramatic, mm-hmm. you know, devaluation of the ruble and a dramatic drop in Russian stocks listed, you know, listed stocks. And so this is a big deal, and I think it's going to hurt the average Russian. I think some of this stuff will have an impact, you know, higher up the hierarchy. And the goal here is not to inflict suffering, hopefully, on the Russian people uh, for its own sake, but to try to push Putin here to see that this is a costly war. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point about normal people being more impacted by these um, sanctions than the people at the top, I think that's why cryptocurrency is so important right now, because it's it's up pretty considerably from a slump that it was in um, about a week ago. But the Ukrainian government is soliciting donations in crypto. They've gotten about the equivalent of $15 million worth. And um, on the other side of the the spectrum, Russian people are actually buying crypto as well, which might seem like a bad thing on the surface. But if you live under an authoritarian or a, an aggressive regime and and somebody freezes your assets, like that's that's kind of unfair. Like you haven't done anything yourself. And so this is allowing individuals to regain some financial autonomy. And it's also important to note that a lot of these crypto re- exchanges are um, blocking specific sanctioned individuals, but not um, the Russian people as a whole, because that would be pretty counter to their entire mission as kind of a democratic financial system. And so I think that crypto um, this is a really important moment for it and a demonstration of how it can restore some financial autonomy to people in in bad situations. Right. There was always this debate about what's the use case of crypto, mm-hmm. right? And, and when we previously talked about crypto, this was the big critique, right? Saying there's no real world use case of crypto except for illegal activity. Now, maybe this is illegal activity, but like to your point, it certainly is is more than speculative at this point. Mm-hmm. This is people who have very little alternative where to, to put their assets and there's some evidence to suggest that it's actually people lower down the economic totem pole, that it's people who hold, you know, a thousand or fewer Bitcoin, for example, which is still a lot. But there's a reason to think that it's not the billionaires that yeah. are driving most of the volatility in crypto. But it's worth mentioning here that not everybody thinks that uh, the recent rise in the price of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are a result of 
what's happening in Ukraine. Um, there are certain people for sure, a lot of people who think that it is. So Mark Mobius, Mobius Capital, um, uh, somebody from First Block Capital, like there, there are people who are, a lot of people coming out saying, absolutely, this is being driven, the increase in price of, of Bitcoin is being driven by Ukraine. But then there are other people like Michael Rinko of AscendX, who thinks that it has more to do with the Fed raising interest rates. Mm -hmm. But there is evidence here um, that there's a, a pickup in activity specifically in Russia and Ukraine um, for cryptocurrency. And there's actually this weird situation, which we couldn't figure out this morning, where there's an arbitrage going on, where it appears that people within Russia are paying more potentially for cryptocurrencies than we pay here in the West. And if any of our listeners can figure out what's going on here or have found anything that can describe this phenomenon uh, or explain it, send it to us and we'll share it. Uh, it's also worth mentioning there's a domestic uh, political debate going on about this. Elizabeth Warren uh, has you know, kind of seized on this moment to say that this is a bad thing. Uh, that if, if it is in fact that that Russians are using cryptocurrency to, as she says, evade the sanctions, she thinks we should be looking into that. There was a really thoughtful response from a lawyer. I think he's based here in New York, and we'll share it in the show notes. I know we put it on our Instagram, where he basically said, "No, like this is actually a really good thing." Yeah, and you know that's a. I think this is a really important debate. Yeah, we shouldn't be punishing the Russian people for the actions of Putin because Russia is not a democracy. Putin was not democratically elected uh, the last time around, uh, at least not based off of the evidence we have about that election. And so we shouldn't be punishing Russian people for what Putin is doing. And I think what Elizabeth Warren is basically saying is that we should somehow be punishing them or at least making it harder on the people. Because if it's hard for Russian people to fight this war, maybe that will mess with morale. But that's not going to convince Putin to stop. If anything, it'll drive him further into isolation and make him even want to go into this war even harder. Right. Yeah. And I think just to point our, our listeners and, and viewers to some really good sources on this, the Financial Times, uh, and we'll link to this, did a really good rundown of who exactly is being targeted. And it names person after person, oligarchs, people close to Putin, different banks. Uh, I think that's the most detailed description of the different financial sanctions we found. Uh, there's this this group, this uh, think tank called Borson Bazaar that did a really good comparison of these current sanctions versus Iran's sanctions in 2012 uh, and beyond. And to compare like, what was the impact what can we learn about Iran's experience and how can we compare it to Russia? Uh, and then there was this really good reporting from Kirsty Ironside of the Washington Post, where she looked at the history of the ruble volatility, showing like all the way back to the Bolshevik days to some recent, you know, financial crises that they've had, like how the Russian people have dealt with volatility in their currency. And, and her point is, it's kind of ingrained within their culture yeah. not to trust the ruble. Yeah. And so uh, she, basically what she's saying is she's kind of pouring some cold water on this saying it's, it's possible that the kind of shock to their financial system that we're seeing is something that they're more prepared for than other nations. Well, let's move on from their financial system to the media, because I know Russian media has historically been known, especially since in the Putin era, has been historically been known of, of being kind of controlled by the state and everything like mm -hmm. that. Uh, Ricky, you've done some reporting um, and some investigation on how the Russian media is framing the narrative here as far as yeah. what they're doing in Ukraine. What have you found out? Um, so, yeah, as you said, um, generally the TV stations are controlled by the Kremlin or either um, their corporate allies kind of acting as an arm of the Kremlin. And there's a major watchdog, media watchdog, that's backed by the government called, I'm going to screw this one up, Roskomnadzor. Um, and they require that all the media companies adhere to an official narrative. Um, and meanwhile, there's also insecurity about young people getting their news from alternative sources like TikTok, which I know you're going to talk about. And the the government is trying to pressure um, Google and TikTok to censor war-related content related to Russia. And the last independent station in the country is being blocked. 
Um, and so in terms of the narrative itself, they're scrubbing mention of a declaration of war or an invasion of any sorts. And the official narrative of what's going on is, quote, a special military operation to defend the people's republics. And so what they're essentially telling their people is Ukrainians are destroying their own cities that if you see like recently, I think there was a t TV tower that was destroyed um, in a Ukrainian city. And they said, oh, the Ukrainians did it themselves. They said that they're using civilians as human shields. They're avoiding almost all mentions of Russian casualties. They're avoiding mentions of the convoy. And they're concentrating on the Donbass region, which is the eastern region that has some more separatist groups that are uh, more sympathetic to the Kremlin and ignoring what's going on in Kiev and Kharkiv. And they're comparing it also, this is the, kind of the craziest part to me, um, to the way that the Soviets fought the Nazis. And so it's just the narrative is completely different and it's completely <laughs> controlled. And they're also super insecure about these alternative media sources and saying that everything you see on the Internet is essentially false. And do they have access to social media right now? Like, so can they find alternative sources on their own that, that are from the West, for example? Um, I do believe they they do. And they have access to TikTok. But um, what the Russian government is attempting to do is get any kind of war related content removed from the suggested for you pages for young people because they're worried that it might be suggestible. Mm. Um, but it's not entirely clear to me what their um, kind of inroads is into TikTok. Obviously, there's a China Russia sort of alliance, but it doesn't seem to be at least yet clear what exactly is going on. Yeah, it's pretty odd that they're comparing Ukraine to Nazis, considering their president is Jewish. Yeah, and I believe there was a bombing in Ukraine in which they bombed. What was it? A, a Holocaust, Holocaust remembrance, memorial. a memorial? Yeah. yeah, and so it's like it doesn't it's doesn't a strange seem thing like to do in a denazification effort. Yeah, yeah, yeah it doesn't exactly. seem like Ukraine is the Nazis in this particular scenario. But uh, as far as the social media stuff is concerned, uh, Ricky, you brought up the fact that Russia is trying to get uh, TikTok to suppress. Ukraine related content to what's mm -hmm. going on with this invasion and they may be kind of successful <laughs> at that uh, based off of a lot of things that we've been seeing over the last few days and some things that I've personally seen uh, with my own TikTok page because basically what's been going on is people in Ukraine have been using TikTok in a way that we've never really seen before with social media to basically broadcast this invasion and this war in real time. I've personally been seeing people basically broadcasting like they're in their homes. You're seeing bombs coming down. You're, you're hearing sirens going off. Like you can actually see warfare live as it's happening. Now, TikTok does have a lot of guidelines where you can't post violent content. So some of this stuff is getting pulled pretty rapidly. I want to show a quick clip here uh, just to kind of illustrate how some people in Ukraine are using TikTok. Hello, my loves. My name my name is Mila and I'm Ukrainian. I am going to be your daily reporter and post the updates from what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, the information I plan to post is going to be only verified. It's not going to be rumors. So please, if you really care, follow me and please share this information. So basically, Ukrainians are using TikTok and sources like that to essentially give the you know the truth the true information that's on the ground and that's something that Russia is really worried about now Personally, what I've seen over the course of the last few days is a lot of, because I, I make history videos on TikTok, I do political videos on TikTok, a lot of people that I know who also do the same kind of content have been seeing their pages, videos are getting taken down that are, U are Ukraine related, some entire accounts are being scrubbed. In fact, <laughs> um, my personal account, I didn't, haven't even been doing any like a lot of Ukraine content, I had like one video on it, my personal account was permanently banned yesterday on uh, TikTok for, I mean, I, they said permanent, it was only for 24 hours, but I was literally 
kicked off the platform. I felt like Trump when it comes to Twitter. I was completely <laughs> kicked off the platform and they gave me no reason for this. And at first I thought maybe like I had done something to upset Putin and like the Russians were hacking me or something. But then I saw this tweet this morning from a friend of mine. His name is Dave Jorgensen. He works with the Washington Post. He's actually the Washington Post's TikTok guy. Like he runs their entire TikTok page. And he posted this, this, he posted this, this morning saying, we scheduled a video on TikTok that was examining some of those clips of tractors pulling military vehicles. When it was supposed to post at 610, it disappeared. Hopefully we'll get more clarity soon. I'll try to post it again tomorrow and see what happens. A couple of other influencers that I know that were posting any type of war-related content, Ukraine-related content, were seeing their pages either heavily suppressed or even deleted altogether. Um, now, I will say, update, my TikTok has been restored, thank goodness. Um, but still, it, it seems like there may have been a successful effort by Russia to get some of this content suppressed. Yeah, and, and obviously we're going to keep monitoring this to find out what the reasons are here. Mm -hmm. You know, <clears throat> if this weren't a Chinese own company mm -hmm. right uh i would i would be a little bit more sympathetic you know because i know we were looking the other day at tiktok content and, and it was possible you saw a soldier get murdered live or something yeah i think i did uh and so tiktok might want to be pulling stuff like that down and yeah, they might not have the resources to do that it's like actual violence but like i think given the sort of history of this company there's reason to be skeptical absolutely yeah definitely and i think that this just goes to the larger point that these sort of censorious regimes are having a much more difficult time today than any other time in history in suppressing information because it's it's so veritable and so democratized that the people in Ukraine can be making TikTok videos that, and even though there's going to be misinformation that's, yeah. and disinformation that's circulating around in a time of war, you know, it's very hard to discern truth from fiction. And I think that this is just a demonstration that censorship is less effective than it ever has been before. And the Russian, the Ukrainians, a lot of them speak Russian. So yeah. they're able to speak to citizens of Absolutely. Russia in a, in, a, in a particularly effective way. There's like some stuff in this, in Russia, Ricky, to your point, that's really troubling. There was a law that went into effect on February 1st that uh, legalized the use of mass graves. And oh, wow. one of the things that's going on is Russia is, it seems, uncomfortable with the, the war casualty numbers. It took them mm -hmm. a while to even acknowledge uh, some of these casualties. They are now saying the official count that they have is 498, I think. Um, and the Ukrainians are claiming it's much, much larger much than that. Yeah. I think there are a lot, of, a lot of reasons to think it's a lot higher. They don't want their population to even know they're in a war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, And so... How long you can keep this up, I think, is a big question. Masha Gessen in, in, in The New Yorker had a really good article. I, I think it was a little bit optimistic. I think in, in she was kind of I think she's kind of in the camp that Putin is gonna, you know, he, he his days are numbered potentially because of this, which I hope she's right. But her point is Putin's been isolated. He's even more isolated than ever because of COVID. Uh, he's had like, you know, not to use the sort of Nazi analogy too much, but like he he feels like, you know, when Hitler's sort of, you know, in, in some of those days where he had like a very small circle of the sycophants around him. Yeah, it seems like Putin at least has a very small circle of people around him. He's got a lot of yes people around him. He's not hearing competing claims. And I think that's part of the reason why his narrative is so weird. Like it's not a very compelling narrative to the Russian public. It certainly hasn't been compelling to the world population. Sure. And, you know, to your point, Corey, that these Ukrainians are inspiring. They're telling their story. It's a very simple story. It's a very compelling story. And it's coming from so many different people. 
Yes, absolutely shows us the value in having a free press and having access to a free press. Well, moving on, the war in Ukraine has triggered an immediate refugee crisis. The UN says more than a million people have fled in the last week, but it seems not everyone leaving the country is receiving equal treatment. There have been reports of non-white refugees being refused entry into neighboring countries. So let's go through some of these reports coming from the border. I know the New York Times has done some work on this. Ravi, what have you seen so far? Uh, some of this is just kind of firsthand anecdotes, accounts yeah. and anecdotes. Um, yeah. Not a lot of official information on this right yeah, now. Yeah, it's really hard to verify this at a macro level, but I would say that there are you know, firsthand accounts. Uh, I think of, there's, I read uh, one African medical student and one Indian medical student who you know just explained that they were refused the ability to leave when they were seeing white Ukrainians leave. As somebody who is you know, half Indian and half Polish, like it's a kind of an interesting story yeah. uh, because I can say this, I guess there's a lot of racists in Poland, uh, and okay. and I think and I think like there's a lot of reasons to believe these. Why why would somebody make this up? Uh, especially yeah. like these people who are doing work on the ground. But you know we're a journalistic entity and we do, we haven't seen the macro data to to support this yet. But when people are saying they can't leave, I, it's hard to imagine why they would make that up. Yeah, and to give a sense of the numbers, um, there are about 80,000 students from Africa and Asia that are studying in Ukraine. It's kind of like a pipeline uh, study abroad kind of place. And uh, 470,000 foreign nationals, and that's as 1 million people total have fled. And obviously, there's going to be limitations on who gets where. And it's really unfortunate to hear that anecdotally, it might be discriminatory. Yeah, absolutely. Eastern Europe has been characterized as a place, like you just said, Ravi, that's hostile towards Africans, people of color, refugees. I wanted to look into this to see to see if this was just like a rumor about Eastern Europe or was there any like data about this? Um, Are we about to lose all our Eastern European listeners? We, we just might. Um, yeah. As Max Fisher demonstrated in the Washington Post back in 2013, he basically said that they were basically trying to compare whether or not Eastern Europe was more xenophobic than Western Europe. They basically asked a question to people of different countries saying, would you not want someone who was outside of your race to be your neighbor? Mm. And based off of their responses, it would seem that intolerance was more widespread in places like Hungary uh, and Romania when compared to places like Spain and Germany and the United Kingdom. But the intolerance levels was actually the, the highest in France. What? And yeah, so um, and then they said tolerance levels in Poland, Ukraine and Czech Republic were about the same as they were in Italy and Finland. Oh, so so maybe I'm too hard on the Poles. Then. Maybe you were, yeah, uh, but, yeah. you, but you're half Polish, so you can do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so so basically based off of this information, it's kind of, you know, just like anywhere. Yeah. You're going to have bad people, you're going to have good people, and maybe they get a bad rap. However, as far as Ukraine is concerned... Uh, there has been, and this is something that, you know, the, one of the narratives that Putin has been trying to spin here is that there's a lot of Nazis in Ukraine. Yeah. There is a group called the Azov Battalion. It's a far-right neo-Nazi portion of the National Guard in Ukraine. In June of 2015, Democratic Representative John Conyers and his Republican colleague Ted Yoho actually offered a bipartisan amendment to block the U.S. from giving mili military training to the Azov Battalion based off of the fact that they were neo-Nazis. And so this is, this is actually... Um, a narrative that has been resonating a little bit in African countries because uh, Putin has been investing in Africa over the last few years. And so a lot of them are seeing these reports of people who are African being denied exit out of Ukraine. And they're seeing it and it's kind of confirming some of the things that they already believe about that region of the world. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what the Indian counterparts of this is, given, you know, India has been 
long neutral and anything conflict yes. between the U.S. and Russia going back to the Cold War, and they abstained, I think, from the U.N. Security Council, uh, the U.N. Uh, General Assembly resolution. And so uh, I'd be interested to see what media within India is saying about this conflict. The odd thing about it, too, is when you talk about, like, white supremacists in Ukraine, you know, Russia is still, like, not clean here. Mm -hmm. uh, back in 2007, ABC News reported that Russia's large uh, number of white supremacists made up half of the world's total of white supremacists. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that's just as much of a problem in Russia as it is in Ukraine. But that still doesn't, you know, justify what is happening in Ukraine if it is happening at large levels. And it's definitely something we'll just have to you know, keep looking into. So let's move on to what's going on with homeschooling. Last year, the pandemic caused a dramatic shift towards homeschooling. The exact national figures are hard to parse out, but zoom into any number of states and you can see a clear trend. Huge jumps in home education from New York to Michigan to Florida. Let's dive right into this. Ravi, you're a former uh, principal of charter schools. What do you think about homeschooling in general and what do you think about these trends? Yeah, I think to parse out the data, the census data suggests that uh, more than 11% of U.S. households are now homeschooling. And we'll get into that data uh, and there's there's some issues with it but by and large we can safely say that there's been an increase in homeschooling if you believe the 11 percent number that's a five percent jump from pre-pandemic numbers uh, there's a you know chalkbeat is reporting about this in new york and the the data seems to suggest and this is uh, from the national census that what's driving this are actually uh, parents of color by and large. So whereas 9.7% of white families with kids have pulled out their kids from traditional education, the number is 12.1% for Hispanic families and 16.1% for black families. So this is significant. Chalkbeat tries to describe like what could be going on here. They give a few, you know, theories about it. One has to do with the fact that if parents are able to work from home more often, then they might be more comfortable having their kids at home. Yeah. But there's, I think, a an even more important explanation here where they talk about how why parents of color in particular? Well, in part because they're given some of the worst educational opportunities in this country. And, and through virtual learning and other experiences of the pandemic, they've become more aware of just how bad their options are. And here's a quote from a woman named Khadija Ali Coleman, uh, who wrote a book about homeschooling. And this is what she had to say about this. This is the book called Homeschooling Black Children in the U.S. The pandemic gave some parents a clear sense of what their children are taught or how they've been treated. And some black families didn't like what they were seeing. So I think if that's true, which there's a lot of reasons to think it is, then I think I wish people had great educational options. I wish they didn't have to homeschool, but I totally understand the impulse. Yeah. And as much as that 11.1% figure is kind of a little questionable because there seems to be confusion in the census about if your children are learning remotely. Some people were saying that they were homeschooling. There are some kind of harder figures that we can look at um, in terms of the enrollment from for the 2020 to 2021 school year. Um, government run schools went down by 3.3%, which is actually pretty significant. And charter school enrollment went up by 7.1% at the same period of time. And there were a total of 8.7 million students in the pandemic that were called movers, which just essentially means that they changed from one method of learning to another. Um, and we're seeing all over the country that this is the case in New York City. Um, there's almost 15,000 students this school year that are going to learn um, as a homeschooling student. And this comes as public support for school choice 
and alternative schooling options is at really record highs. And it's it's across all racial groups. It's across all parties. Um, it's 74 percent of voters, 83 percent of Republicans, 69 independents and 70 Democrats. So it's it, I think the pandemic for all the cracks that it kind of exposed in our educational system has really woken people up to the idea of alternative options. Yeah. And the numbers are particularly high in Virginia, where they saw you know some of the most aggressive closures. Obviously, they had uh, Ralph Northam, yeah. uh, who made some tone-deaf statements about parents not being involved in their education. He was, he's very close with Randy Weingarten, who campaigned for him, who's the head of the teachers, one of the national teachers unions. And so I think in part, progressives are looking flat-footed on this. They're, they they look like they're not understanding the challenges that parents are facing. This was obviously at work in the San Francisco school board uh, recall. And I think there are fissures within progressive communities now where you're seeing certain mayors say, like London Breed, saying, We're here to ask you, to beg you, to work with us and get our schools open right away. These kids are counting on us. And then you're seeing some Democrats who are more orthodox on this saying, no, like, we, you know, we know who, bre uh, you know, butters our bread. It's the unions. And we're going to hold the line. And I also think like the school choice now has become so politicized because of CRT, critical race theory debates, that now that's being commingled and certain people are saying, well, no, we don't want parents to have a choice in their education because we don't we don't like this, the particular flavor of this debate. And I'm a little bit sympathetic to that, but I think people need to look beyond these numbers and say like, like a lot of these are being driven by parents of color, right? Like, yeah. like they're not happy with their experience. They, they weren't happy before the pandemic. They're particularly unhappy right now. And I don't think this is something that's just gonna go away when the pandemic's over. Well, I was ahead of the curve to your point about how a lot of African-American parents are making this choice. When I was in like the first grade, my brother was in the fourth grade. We lived in a not so great neighborhood, didn't have great school options. And my mom actually used to come to our school to see what was going on there. And like many of these parents today, didn't like what she was seeing. So when I went to second grade, I was actually homeschooled. I was actually homeschooled for about three years from wow. second to fourth grade. And there were pros and cons. You know, one of the pros is I think I got more education during that time period of my life in those three years at homeschool than I got in the four or five that succeeded it, honestly, being just at home and not having the distractions, especially the distractions of a poor education system. However, one of the cons was I wasn't properly socialized. Those yeah. are very critical years. I've noticed. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little wacky sometimes. Uh, but yeah, you know, it, it does mess with a kid's ability to be able to connect with other children if they're there by themselves. If they have siblings, it makes it a little better. Uh, I know, Ricky, you were mentioning something about if they have like, you know, sports or something in their community that they can get involved in, that makes it a little better. I, I would suggest that if someone homeschools their student, they do things like that so that also properly socialize their students. But I, I can't lie. I did learn more in homeschool than I did in, in regular public school. Yeah, there's something to this where I, my hope for the future, and some of this data shows the rise of these things called micro schools. Mm -hmm. When we were doing reporting on the San Francisco school uh, recall, uh, parents and other community uh, uh, activists, and even the mayor, were putting together these learning hubs, which are kind of you know nonprofit government uh, hubs for people to just show up and do their virtual learning. But it's also a place where you could see other kids, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that the government should be creating these. Uh, beyond the pandemic and saying like, you can go to a place within your community where maybe you're doing like you're accelerated, you're doing Khan Academy or there's some kind of mm -hmm. differentiation that you need or maybe there's a language that you wanna learn that other people that's not available in your traditional public school or whatever. We could take advantages of the wealth of knowledge on the internet while creating these sites where kids can socialize, they can do sports, members of the community can get involved. Like we have a teacher yeah. shortage like we never before. So maybe this can alleviate that. I would, yeah. I wanna see more innovation in this area and I think you're gonna see it. And I think like, I, I think you're gonna actually see red states taking the lead on this. I think Arizona is one of them, Florida probably, where 
they're going to be resources put into these types of hubs. And I think it, there's going to be some inconvenient data coming out of this for progressives when you compare my prediction is a couple of years from now, when you compare those learning hubs to the education that's happening outside of them, we may be faced with some startling data. Yeah, definitely. And I actually, I have twin six-year-old cousins that live out in California. And during the pandemic, their schools were closed for like way too long. And um, their mom sent one of them to like what they call the pod, which was just basically like in somebody's garage, they set up like an entire classroom and there were like six students or something and they were being like in a COVID bubble. And the one that went like has just gone off the charts. Like he's he's so much better developed. He's he's learned so much from this kind of smaller enriched environment. And unfortunately, his twin brother has like a little bit of a learning disability. So he didn't qualify to like end up in the same pod. And at the same time, like within the same family, like he's falling behind and the other one is kind of skyrocketing. And so I think that the pandemic is just a really, really kind of clarified the imbalances socioeconomically in terms of students that have higher needs. It's it's really crazy. But to your point, that kind of more focused, concentrated educational setting is super effective for some kids. Yeah. And this is where I think like if, if I could just get in the room with conservatives and say, look, like this is, I think, a lane, like do this really well, do this sort of the innovation, the deregulation within schools, but towards like for a an admirable aim, mm-hmm. higher quality, more empowerment for parents, and then de-emphasize some of the 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 CRT, like at least the, the tinges of CRT that we've talked about that are like trying to like get rid of, you know, banned books or de-emphasize like a fair reading of our history. And you could actually start to appeal to more parents of color if you're able to combine those two things and, and take some of the racist stuff out of the CRT yeah. stuff. I mean, I, I love this idea of the learning hubs and things like that. Ravi for Secretary of Education. I'm all, <laughs> I'm all for it. Me too. So, uh, now, I think there would be some people voting against me within my own party on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, probably get more Republican. You might have to switch parties. Yeah. yeah. You might have to switch parties. <laughs> now on to some news at the intersection of mental health and psychedelics. The governor of Utah has a fascinating bill on his desk right now. It would create a task force to study the potential therapeutic use of psychedelic drugs. Far out, man. And the bill is popular. It passed both chambers of the state legislature in Utah by giant margins. There seems to be real momentum around these kinds of drugs being used to treat mental health conditions. Um, so, yeah, what do we what do we think of this? This is very interesting stuff. Um, well, I think that there's definitely some huge promises. It's interesting that a conservative Mormon um, state legislator there named Bre- uh, Brady Brammer was the one that brought the bill before the House, which in which it passed 68 to one. Um, and then in the state Senate, it was 23 to one. Um, but there, there are some real promises in this data. Um, it's supposed to potentially relieve major depressive episodes um, and for the immediate effect and long-term effects as well. Um, it can comfort terminally ill patients who are struggling with that reality. And Parkinson's is another one that they're potentially looking at with a link. There's 10 active clinical trials within the U.S. Um, anxiety, depression, bipolar, OCD, PTSD. There wow. seems to be a lot of... Um, serious potential. And so this specific bill would create a task force of medical professionals and not necessarily like implement anything, but just look into it deeper and make sure that we're giving it a chance and it's not overly stigmatized from kind of the the 60s stereotypes of what these sort of psychedelics are like. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting, Utah is such a fascinating state for this kind of stuff. Uh, it, it, it seems to to just have its own unique brand of conservatives. Mm-hmm. And I once interviewed the the governor, Spencer Cox, uh, and he's one of the most fascinating figures in national politics. He's like a kind of super independent um, conservative. 
And I thought this was this, like particularly like a Utah type phenomenon. But then I looked around and there's like bills in Oklahoma mm-hmm. and all across the country. And part of what I think is happening is some of the, the major powerful forces like Peter Thiel within conservative politics are more libertarian now. Yeah. And I think that, um, and then you have people like the Koch brothers who uh, are emphasizing um, decarceration and Koch brother. Coke brother. Oh yeah, he's, yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, <laughs> <It's Martin. laughs> so uh, rest in peace. Uh, so, um, you know, I think like there's a lot of things about big money and politics that I hate, but this actually seems to be giving cover to uh, conservative legislators all across the country, not just in quirky states like Utah, to push for this type of legislation. And that's cool because you're seeing it in super progressive states like Oregon, which is now passed, you know, had a referenda that passed overwhelmingly and is now in this window period where I think they're figuring out how to implement their law. I think it would be kind of weird to trip in Utah, though. I mean, it's a really seems like the perfect kind of place. Although I've never done psychedelics, though, I mean, so. I haven't either, um, officially. But um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, Utah has beautiful uh, national parks and just a really beautiful environment. So I mean, that would be that would be interesting. But but Ricky, you were talking about too, though. There might be some downsides to this because there are some mental illnesses that might react worse to this type of treatment than than better. Yeah, definitely. So I I mean, I'm definitely libertarian and i'd like to see as many things deregulated as possible and i like to see that like jordan peterson and figures on the right are being more positive and open-minded to um psychedelics versus historically being pretty anti-drug in general but i think as much as i am happy to see our culture accept drugs um like psychedelics more i am definitely disheartened to hear to see the lack of nuance around some of the conversations because i in my own family we have some uh, family history of schizoaffective disorders and it's notable that every single one of these studies has excluded people with schizoaffective disorders entirely because this can trigger um, psychosis and trigger it even if you haven't manifested it at all it can kind of flip the switch and that can change people's lives and set them off a terrible course for the rest of their lives. And I think it's really important that we discuss that because, you know, a lot of people don't even know that that runs in their family. And so I think that as much as a, this is a positive, I think we need to op- broaden yeah. that conversation and be pragmatic about it. And even um, the UK study by Compass Pathways, which is like the largest randomized controlled study of this type came out of the UK um, by Compass Pathways. And of the little of over 200 patients that they had, uh, 12 of them, ended up with severe negative side effects, including suicidal ideation. And that's after already filtering for people who had predispositions. And so I just think that's a critical part of this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, it feels almost like the Bitcoin conversation in the sense that like you could be f- like generally optimistic about developments in an area without thinking that everything about it is gonna be positive, Definitely. right? Yeah. Or that there isn't some role for government uh, in ensuring that this transition works really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one book I'll recommend to the audience if you haven't read it, it's Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. It's like a wonderful, wonderful book about, it goes through the history of the psychedelics and, and why we've gotten to this point, the science behind them. And it's also like a personal journal where he basically talks about using the different types of psychedelics. And he's kind of a nerdy scientist. So it's like really interesting because he's not one of those people who's like, you know, um, like one of these kind of like 60s culture figures who yeah. just, talks about in mystical ways. He goes through the science, but also can be poetic at times about it. Yeah, and I think there's also like the spiritual element too. I feel like so many people I know anecdotally and and like the media have been spiritually transformed and kind of connected with the universe through this. And so I think for the people that it's safe and effective for, that's that's great. But it's also worth mentioning that in the studies that they did do, 
there were like up to 30% of people who said that they experienced extreme fear or anxiety at some point in in tripping. And so it's it's important to remember that it's not always that kind of experience. Yeah, just some, some bad trips, man. Like <laughs> I think, well, I think it just, we have to be very cautious with this type of research. And I also think we got to get like, you know, some people from like the Joe Rogan show to come on and, and have a more nuanced <laughs> conversation about <laughs> psychedelics because I don't <laughs> think we have enough personal but, experience. I think on that though, like this is this is reason to be optimistic about this is that it, it is an area of genuine bipartisan agreement yes and so like let's celebrate that yeah you the know? one thing we can agree on in this country is shrooms man yeah <laughs> it's Absolutely. a good start it's a good, it's good a start. start it's yeah. a start yeah. it's a good start yeah well we appreciate you all for watching us make sure to subscribe to our youtube channel and if you're listening to the podcast make sure to rate review and subscribe we will see you guys next time